from Our Savior's Atonement Lutheran Church on Bennett Avenue in the Heights of New York City, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air, where we showcase the writers, filmmakers, musicians, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home here in Upper Manhattan. I'm Aaron Sims. And I'm Jonathan Bell. And this is Live and Local. It's our podcast dedicated to showcasing the musicians of Upper Manhattan. We talk with them about what they do, and best of all, listen to them perform live in the studio. Who is joining us today, Jonathan? Aaron, today we welcome guitarist Juanma Trujillo and violist Leonor Falcon. Leonor was classically trained in her native Venezuela at the Emil Friedman Conservatory in the Mozartium de Caracas. She went on to study performance at the Conservatory of Geneva and jazz at Queens College, which brought her to New York City in 2010. Her bold collaborations with ensembles like Willie Colon's band, the Sirius Quartet, O Quarteto, Camellia Meza, and the Nectar Orchestra, and Sarah Bernstein's Veer Quartet have made her familiar to jazz, avant-garde, classical, and Latin music fans across New York City. Her solo album, Imaga Mondo, was released in 2017. Juan Matrujillo made his name as a guitarist playing with noted Venezuelan musicians like Domingo and Yamas and Gustavo Medina in and around his hometown of Caracas. In 2014, Juan Ma came to New York City after nine years on the Los Angeles music scene. And since then, he's broken and explored exciting new musical ground here in New York with artists like Francisco Mella, Mimi Jones, Nick Grinder, Rebecca Sullivan, and of course, Leonore Falcon. His compositions have been called, quote, challenging, clear, cohesive, and profound, end quote. We are very excited to hear what Leonore and Wanma have in store for us today, Aaron, on Live and Local. And here they are. Wama Trujillo and Leonor Falcon.
Well, that was just delightful. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you both here. So good to Thank see you, Aaron. Aaron. Yeah, nice to see you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So tell us, please, what you just played for us. The first tune is a tune I wrote. It's called Para Emilio, which means for Emilio. And Emilio is actually our unborn child, which is right here. So it's sort of like a lullaby slash free improvisation included in it. You know, it's it's just a melody that we we just play at different ways every time. And we try to make it mellow as a lullaby and and fun as a, I don't know, like a children's tune or something. And then the second tune is Juanma's tune. The tune still has a working title, but I guess originally it was named Demosthenes because we have a neighbor whose name is that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, she's really nice, you know, so like I thought, oh, let, let me write her a tune. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah, and it's like a slow, very slow bossa nova type of tune, you know, that I just kind of wanted to have like this really slow, but very lush harmonies kind of shifting. Well, I think um, in no particular order, just because you're, the word you used, lush, I thought is, uh, I was thinking when I was hearing that piece, I was like, hmm, I was thinking of what adjectives I'm going to use for that harmonic palette. And I think lush is a great one. I was, I was kind of thinking it's kind of, it's a fresh sound without being, oh, it's not, it doesn't come with, there are plenty of dissonances, but it doesn't sound dissonance. And that could be because of a lot of the like suspended and quality to it and yeah go ahead yeah i think that the the harmonies like never really resolve there's not really a tonal center on it and um, the other thing is like yeah like i think in my mind brazilian music has that quality where like some of the some of the harmonies are like like incredibly sophisticated and Whenever there's a chord, if if it's even if it's the most simple chord, they add every color note that that's possible there. So every you know, extension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, yeah. So like, <laughs> I wanted to to like kind of like pick chords that would allow me to have all those colors on the guitar. Aaron, I'm gonna have to get a little wonky just for a second. Little detour. This is a question I've had and then I've never had the opportunity to ask someone who I think might have something to say about it. What is it about Bossa Nova that allows there to be such what ought to be jarring chord changes and they don't sound that way? And I was like thinking, is it something to do partly with the rhythm? Because sometimes when just even with like Jobin or something, he'll he'll do things that are, and he sort of occupies a space between like popular and more uh, complex things. But but he does have instances, and even in his very popular tunes, where it's like whoa, but it doesn't sound like whoa. It sounds like a seamless thing. And I'm like, what is it about Bossa Nova? To me, and I don't know what you have to say, but uh, I think that to me is all about the vibe that that he kind of like. There's a very specific aesthetic to Bossa Nova that's very kind of subdued that allows it allows for like rare complexity just kind of like tucked underneath. <laughs> right. And it's also because there's always like really nice melodies. Mm. You know? mm -hmm. 
So like there's all this uh, harmonic support underneath, like always, it's always kind of snuck behind a really beautiful melody that anybody can relate to. I was thinking about how the melodies are, you know, it might be a little too technical, but maybe like the melody is very long usually, and mm -hmm. then the chords are changing, but the notes on the melody work on different chords. So they change to all these chords, but that melody still works. So the color changes a lot and it gives that impression that it's very like complex. Well, first of all, it's just great to hear the combination of a violin and guitar. It's absolutely beautiful. You guys like complement each other so <laughs> well. I wanted you to get a chance maybe to respond to what I said earlier before. It now makes total sense that your piece is a lullaby. Uh -huh. um, and, I, and it was so soothing just to hear, you know, you come in when you do with uh, your chord. It's, uh, it's, it's very sensitive. But that melody, like I said, at least part of it mm -hmm. reminded me of a piece by Bach, The Intervals. Yeah, and um, I often, I happen to be a music director at a church and I okay. sometimes play the piece I mentioned as okay. a way to settle people down. And I thought that was interesting because mm -hmm. that's what a lullaby is. I did not think about Bach at all, but I guess I practice Bach, so maybe it's somewhere in my brain those interval combinations. I don't know, but that's, that's an interesting impression, yeah. And congratulations, by the way. We should yeah. just say Thank it. You. <laughs> well, Thank you. It, yeah, <laughs> if, it's, if it's not transparent by now, Juanma and Leonor are a couple. And a handsome one at that, if you can hear it through the radio, folks. <laughs> Building off of that, it's clear collaboration is vital to you both, not only as people, obviously as musicians. Musically, of course, we saw it just a moment ago. So can you talk a little bit about what collaboration means to you in your daily lives? Because it obviously informs you. I mean, you are musicians. It is what you do. It is who you are. Uh, given that importance, it's been awfully isolating lately, this past year, particularly your work, Wama, with, with the, the variety of musicians you've played with. Both of you, though, really seriously. You're, uh, Leonard, you're in many different groups. So how has this past year been for you artistically that because obviously playing you've been able to play with each other which is fantastic but even fairly limited in not only just collaborating on stage in the moment of creating the music but the actual creation of music do you have first? something that you want? i don't know but you go first <laughs> <laughs> well it's um, either collaborating already folks yeah yeah <laughs> no I, I you know it's definitely i definitely miss it i've been fortunate enough that a couple of opportunities have come up uh, throughout the year for me to do concerts with people and do recordings. I think it's a good time for musicians to record if they can record in a space that allows for like a, some degree of safety in health-wise. Uh, yeah, and just, just kind of document your work that way. As musicians, we always want to present our work to an audience. But I think that this year we also learned a great deal about the sacrifice it takes for us to like take care of each other. I think we needed to learn <laughs> that, you know, like uh, because we, uh, as this modern life progresses, you know we don't seem to learn very much the idea that we need to live our lives not only for what it's good for us 
you know. So I think in some weird way, I don't want to say I don't want to say that COVID was like a blessing or anything, because like it's been horrible, you know. In some ways, it's a lesson for us to learn that like we do have to make some sacrifices sometimes to ensure uh, the well-being of other people. It's been hard, but I I've accepted it too. <laughs> so I guess that's what I've said. Yeah, and, <laughs> and uh, accepting it. God knows how long it's going to be till people. It's not about the vaccine so much. It's more about people feeling safe to gather, right, and and be together. And also, like you said, be coming together as as a presenter and producer of events. I'm very cognizant of that. I'm also very cognizant of the lifespan of virtual concerts and things like that. Do you feel like it's going to be here to stay past COVID? I mean, nothing obviously replaces live being together in the same room. But uh, is there a value for virtual post-COVID, do you believe? What I think is about the virtual concerts is certainly not the same as going to see somebody that, that's really an accomplished musician or band played in live because the, it's just like the energy is not the same, even if the concert is like really well produced. And that, that's one of the things that kind of makes it or break it in the virtual world. I think like if the venue or whoever is organizing the concert has the production capability to really make a polished kind of like presentation of the music, that makes a big difference. So I think the bad thing about that is that not everyone has access to be able to do something like that. The good thing about that is that I already seen some of my friends, musician friends and stuff, like getting really good at branching out to like getting better at production and stuff and getting some of these things together to stream their own concerts. And in the lives of musicians where like the avenues for income are kind of like getting slimmer by the day, you know, like I think it could be a possibility, but it's not for me to say how valuable it is or not. I think it's just something that is, you know. And if you can take advantage of it, how do you feel, Lenore? No, I, I agree with what Juan is saying. I was thinking that virtual concert situation might be here to stay for a long time, I think, if there is not enough support for venues that are the venues where the music is presented. So especially important jazz venues in Manhattan are struggling so much to stay open, you know, because their rent is super high and they're not allowed to bring people in. So they are doing a lot of concert streams, but it's not the same. They don't earn the same, obviously. So I'm feeling like if those places start to close, yeah, definitely they're going to need to have a space at least to stream. So that that's going to be, that's the way, like all these jazz clubs are doing virtual streaming almost every night you know and, and they're doing a great effort from their venue uh, yeah, yeah yeah like, like a few I, of them yeah. we, didn't without... you do a show at smalls recently i was there on wednesday and what they did is basically i think that they turned the whole place into a non-profit that way they've been able to keep their place afloat and then also pay the musicians. I think the astute thing about that was that now people 
who is able to fund concerts, they can do so because they are a nonprofit. You know? So uh, our concert was sponsored by this guy that's like, uh, he's the owner of a record label called Jojo Records. And basically, I think he just, his record label is not a jazz record label, but like he loves jazz and he wanted to support the venue. So I don't think he intended to even fund or a specific concert. He just supported the venue because he goes there often. And, and just to add one thing that I just thought at a very, in my life, parochial level <laughs> with my piano students, I've had a few Zoom, like everyone has, probably by now, Zoom piano concerts for my students. Most of them are young. And one benefit that I can see of it continuing in the future is that extended family from everyone was watching from Washington, Wisconsin, New Mexico, in some cases overseas. And it wouldn't have even occurred to me to do something like that. And so, I mean, that's, there are these little silver linings. And in that case, you were, were having people who normally had never seen their nephew play before and now they are. And I can kind of see like a, a venue just maybe continuing to, even if they, it can be an extra revenue stream, even if it's modest, if you're bringing in viewers to the Village Vanguard in Nebraska, that's a kind of a cool thing that if that, you know. I think it's very important to realize that there's benefits to both and one doesn't have to. It's right. my, my personal opinion is, it's not either or. That's right. It's uh, but it can be but, but it's interesting combination of that's right. Both that's things, right because yeah. everything everything that says incredibly valid and just so you know uh, there is a Save Our Stages Act uh, in Congress for small venues and when we do we, we do mean like venues like Wama was talking about like Smalls La Poisson Rouge places that are venues to house concerts and it's incredibly important to, for those to be preserved because as you may know. Uh, Inwood, Washington Heights, we have no venues. Uh, and so when, when, so, and so when the downtown venues go away, we're really in trouble. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Aaron's working hard to fix that, yeah. but we are, we are endeavoring to do yeah, that yeah, as yeah. you both know that yeah. very much yeah. as have oh, you thank played you for, for yeah, your yeah. work. No, yeah. It's really important. You're a hero. My <laughs> thank yeah. you very much. My pleasure. Getting for a second back to music really quickly. I really wanted to touch on at least briefly, just improvisation generally and your influences and culturally speaking when it comes to improvisation and um, of course there is the american jazz piece to that which you know sometimes gets mistaken as the genesis of improvisation in the sort of the common imagination there's that mistake making and of course i assume the american jazz musician has had its influence on what it means to you to improvise but i'm sure you have other roots that you're drawing from so i was wondering if you could speak to that so influences so in my personal case i truly i i grew up in a household with a lot of music because my father is a musician and so is his wife but my dad was born here so he plays guitar as well and he plays a lot of rock and uh, jazz. So that's what I heard a lot at home. And then on my mom's side, there's like a lot of Italian. So there was a lot of opera and a lot of Verdi and a lot of Donizetti and like all this. And my mom loves, you know, like Renaissance music, Baroque music, like mm -hmm. this. Um, Gregorian Gregor Like, yeah, like Medieval. she, ha yeah, like she has like a, the whole collection, early music. Early that's music. what it's called. So, um, yeah, it's like he actually has like a huge collection of like Jordi Saval records and 
I grew up listening to all these different things and some Venezuelan music, but not really like the traditional stuff. So I'm very wary of people's like, oh, you're Venezuelan. So you probably play, you know, this joropo where you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> I have to practice it. Like, it's not like it's in me. So yeah, since I was in the conservatory and I was doing classical music because that's the school, that's how it is, right? Like academia, violin, conservatory technique. But I wanted to improvise. I was always fascinated with musicians that could improvise. And I always... Which tried. musicians would those be? Well, for example, my dad had some Turtle Island string quartet records. They're an amazing like quartet. They're based in the West Coast and they play jazz with a string quartet and they're really, really good. They're amazing. So he had all these records that I would listen to and I didn't know anybody in Venezuela that could play like that, you know, so... I was like, wow, you know, I want to do that. You know, like, how do I do this stuff? And, you know, Jean-Luc Ponty and Grappelli and Urbaniak and all this, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, like all this 70s stuff. I love music from the 60s and 70s. I think it's my dad's fault because that's <laughs> the music that he plays. So Aretha Franklin and like all this soul stuff. You know, too. it's good. It's, it's amazing. It's like I hear that stuff. It's like wow, this is part of me. And then I'm like, wait, it's not really part of me? <laughs> but whatever, like, I just, I really, I, I love it, you know. So those were like my earlier influences. And then I came to New York and I discovered that free improvisation was a thing <laughs> that you could do. I went to listen to the Carl Berger Improvisers Orchestra at the Jazz Gallery years ago. And I was like, oh, wow, like, I want to do this. So I, I talked to him somehow through a friend and I got in and that was like love at first sight for me. It's like, okay, this is my thing. You know, so I really, really enjoy that way of improvising. So has the pandemic allowed you to find new ways to improvise, reflecting on old forms, so to speak, in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> and, and, but, but also, too, is like you've been together for so long in many different ways. Has this time allowed you to be found new discoveries for each other? Some people in the community, has they were doing like a um, concert series online, and we did a few of those. And actually, Juanma did a record, and I, I recorded his string section, like the woman orchestra here. Like I did the, all the parts and... Mm. That was really cool that you were like dictating what you wanted and like I was just trying yeah. to Yeah, I made a record. It's called Stupidly. I made I called it folklore and then two months later Taylor Swift came out with a record called Folklore. So they get like, so okay, you're saying yeah. they get confused all the time. Everyone thinks <laughs> you have the number confused. one hit on the pop charts. They don't get confused all the time. It's just like you absolutely crush any chance. She, co of... she copied your name. Like, yeah. it's, it's, that's what it's, it's obviously she has good taste in music, and so she's been listening to you for oh how long? God. I'm sure. Folklore came about because there's a group of musicians that have an artist collective in Brooklyn. They are called Polyfold a music arts collective and they run a music series down there and they invited me to perform and my concert was set up to be in April you know but then they had to cancel you know so basically what they said to all the people that was involved in that particular concert was hey guys how about we help you guys out with producing a piece of music that we can do instead for the you know like that you can record in any way and, and like they were very open about how to go about it you know like we could either record ourselves or do like a audiovisual thing or something 
And since I moved to New York, I've been working a lot in production as well. And I work at a studio in Brooklyn and I have recording equipment at home and stuff. So I kind of figured out a way that I could make the piece that I had written for that concert work as a, like remote recording. So yeah, just the thing that I did was kind of to adjust some of the parameters of how we were going to play and just find a way to communicate to the musicians how to make it work. Based on what they sent me, I kind of assembled the whole thing. And it's it's really strange recording, but I love it. And it's just, it just ends up being a document of this particular time. No, I, I think and it's been like a good thing overall. You know, we had all this stuff canceled, whatever. But staying home, we've been able to write more music. Yeah. We've recorded a lot at home. And this concert series, also, we did a, a bunch of creative yeah, stuff. And then you did another record with Mela, and I did another record. Yeah. Another. Well, here's a much easier question for you two. What are you going to be playing for us next? Leonard just made a record that we need to finish mixing and all this stuff. So it's one of the pieces from her album. It's called The Monks. Well, she mentioned that she loves early music. So it's kind of based out of that like early modal music type of thing. And then the next piece is a piece that I wrote that, again, doesn't have a title. Well, you can name it after me. I'm your friend, too. (laughs) Or Jonathan. He's he's your new friend. It's like, yeah, Aaron and Jonathan in F major. (laughs) Got a nice ring to that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, excellent. Once again, Juan Maturillo and Leonor Falcone.
That was incredible, you guys. Can you give our listeners a place where they can hear more amazing tracks like this? Well, Leonor has her website. I have my website. You have your website. Yeah. And then we have a record label that also has a website, and that goes into Bandcamp. Yeah. So my website is leonorfalcon.com, and yours is... juanmatrujillo.com. And then the label is called Falcon Gumba. So Falcon like the bird and then G-U-M-B-A. And this is your label, clearly. This is our label, clearly, exactly. (laughs) And it's falcongumba.com. You can also find it on Bandcamp. You find all the records we've put out on there. And there's links to the label too on either of our websites. Leonard, do you have the name of your new album yet? It's Imagamondo Volume 2. Not very original. Like the first one, number two. Hey, I quit a good thing, right? right? Keep it going. <laughs> it's the same band. so. Well, we'll have those links up on our Inwood Artworks website. Very much thanks to these wonderful people. Thank our, you. Thank our you our local musicians, Juan Matrilo and Leonor Falcon, for joining us today on this live and local episode of Inwood Artworks On Air. And this is where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all kinds who make their home here in what we affectionately call upstate Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Big thanks to our Savior's Atonement here for hosting us and to HeightSites.com for our local uptown promotional support. Be sure to follow us also on social media wherever you can at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Al Fresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and more. And you can support On Air and all our programming by making a tax-free donation at InwoodArtworks.nyc slash donate. Inwood Artworks On Air is made possible with funding from the NYC and Company Foundation with support from Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer and the Niska Electronic Media and Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Aaron Sims. I'm Jonathan Bell. For Inwood Artworks On Air. 